idols. They never satisfied. They never satisfied. Kyle Eidelman's book, The Gods of War. He says on page 75, when we experience pleasure, there's a part of us that thinks, yes, this is what I was made for. Even if you haven't experienced much much pleasure in your life, you've experienced enough to know that you want more. Thus begins the quest for the elusive narcotic of pleasure. And so the gods of pleasure whisper, Wouldn't you like to scratch that itch? Wouldn't you like to satisfy that appetite? Wouldn't you like to experience that feeling? Wouldn't you like to get that high? I have what you are looking for right here. And so we walk into the temple of pleasure. And there we see the gods of food, sex, and entertainment. There are others to be sure, but these are the ones that we most often find ourselves bowing down to. And when we begin to worship pleasure, the end result is always pain. I want you to clue in on the last part of that paragraph there that that I just read to you. He said, when we begin to worship pleasure, the end result is always pain. Note he didn't say this. When we begin to worship pleasure, the end result is sometimes pain. He didn't say this either. When we began to worship pleasure, the end result is most of the time pain. No. He said when we began to worship pleasure, the end result is always pain. Do you think that's true? Or is that an overstatement? Consider E for a moment. What I want to do here for the first part of this sermon is just kind of go through the pages of Scripture And see if what is on the screen here isn't true from the testimony of those who have gone before us. Consider Eve. She, you could say it this way, she chose to worship pleasure over God. God said, don't eat the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. But what did she do? She she fell to that temptation that was put in front of her. Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now we like to blame Eve for this, but really Adam is just as much to blame as Eve was. Did, Did you notice where it all started? It started with her eyes. I said to you last week as we were talking about the need to guard our heart, that that we need to be careful with our eyes. Our eyes and our ears determine what goes into our heart. Eve had set her eyes on the forbidden fruit. She saw that it was good for food, that it was probably going to make her wiser than what she was. And so she partook. She bowed down to the God of pleasure, and certainly the end result was pain. She sinned. 
That relationship that she had with her creator was broken. And she and Adam even had a rift amongst themselves. They, they began to blame other people. Eve's pointing the, the finger at the serpent. And, and Adam is pointing the finger at Eve. And, and, and you look into the scripture, you see that even Adam was blaming God. He, he said to God, the woman that you gave me is the one who gave me this fruit to eat. And so the blame game had gotten started and, and there was a curse that was put upon the earth. The curse involved pain and childbirth for the woman. The curse involved heartache and misery for all of mankind and, and sickness and natural disasters and, and death and weeds in the garden. All of that was a part of the curse. When we began to worship pleasure, the end result is always pain. Abraham and Sarah could testify to this too. Sarah was barren. She wanted so badly to have a child, but it wasn't working out. She was consumed more with her barrenness than what she was consumed with God and trusting him to keep his promise. So what did she do? She decided to help God out a little bit. She arranged for her husband Abraham to have a night of pleasure with her maid Hagar. Abraham obliged. He agreed to worship in the temple of pleasure. And wouldn't you know it, Hagar wasn't barren. Hagar was very fertile and it was the right time for her to conceive. And she ended up pregnant. And all of a sudden now Sarah doesn't just have her barrenness to concern her, herself with. Now she has a jealousy problem over her handmaiden, Hagar, who has been with her husband, and she's having a baby. And a baby boy is born. His name is Ishmael. Later, you remember in the story, Sarah was able to conceive and have a baby, a baby boy. They named him Isaac. Isaac, you remember, became the father of the Jewish nation. Ishmael became the father of the Arab nation. And ever since, this has been going on between the Jews and the Arabs. When we began to worship Pleasure, the end result is always pain. Esau is another one who could testify to this truth. You remember Esau was the older brother to Jacob. He wasn't much older. They were twins. But Esau came out of, the, out of his mother's womb first. So he was the older brother and he was the rightful heir to all that which was due to the older son. The firstborn son was to receive a double portion of his father's inheritance. But Esau wasn't very smart. He was governed more by his stomach than he was by his brains. The day came that his brother Jacob was cooking soup in the kitchen. And Esau came home from the field. He had been out hunting all day long. He came home empty-handed and he was hungry. He thought he was starving to death. And you and I have been there before. We, we may even say, I'm starving. We're really not starving. We're just hungry. We haven't had food to eat maybe for a couple hours. 
And Esau hadn't eaten all day and he had been out in the field. He'd been plowing his way through the brush and the thicket. And and he is famished, he says. The word famished means weary. He is completely worn out. He thinks he's starving to death. As he comes into the house, he smells the cooking that's coming from the kitchen. He walks in. There is his brother Jacob. He's cooking lentil soup, the scripture says. And it maybe it was his favorite soup. I'm assuming he's had it before and he says, I want a bowl of soup, Jacob. Jacob says, I'll give you a bowl of soup, but you've got to give me something. We're going to make a trade here. We're going to bargain. And so Jacob bargains a bowl of soup for Esau's birthright. And Esau was silly enough, he was foolish enough to make that bargain. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a decision that he regretted the rest of his life. A bowl of soup for his birthright. When we begin to worship pleasure, the end result is always pain. The people of Israel had a history of worshiping pleasure instead of worshiping God. Moses went up onto the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. He was up there longer than what the people anticipated him to be. And before long, they are indulging in the temple of pleasure. They are eating and drinking and lusting and giving themselves to every orgy that that, that you could think of. 1 Corinthians 10, 7 says, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan rave reverie. Do you know what's going on? I mean, they are involved in a wild party, a party that is way out of control. The music is playing. The drink was excessive. The dirty, the dancing got dirty and you know where it went from there. Isn't it interesting how all of that goes together so often? Their partying and their recklessness sickened the heart of God and he poured his wrath out upon them. When we began to worship pleasure, the end result is always pain. If you read from Kyle Eidelman's book this last week, you read about Amnon, one of David's sons, and Tamar, one of David's Daughters and Amnon lusted after Tamar and raped her. There was so much pain there as he entered into that temple of pleasure, not just for Amnon and Tamar, but for the entire family. When we begin to worship pleasure, the result, the end result is always pain. Solomon is another one who could give testimony of this truth. He gave himself to every pleasure under the sun. You read his story in the book of Kings and then Ecclesiastes. He gave himself to wine and to women. He tried food. He, he increased his knowledge to a point that people came from every corner of the earth to listen to his wisdom. He increased his riches. He was an archaeological genius and he was into science. He was into landscaping and building things. He explored pleasure from every angle and this was his his conclusion vanity of vanities all is vanity 
You read from the NIV, it says it this way. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. He says in Ecclesiastes 1.14, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He tried it all. He had camped out in the, in the temple of pleasure for a long, long time. And he came to this conclusion. When we began to worship pleasure, the end result is always pain. Would you, would you read that with me? When we began to worship pleasure, the end result is always pain. Now, what we need to decide today is are we going to learn from those who have gone before us? Are we going to learn from their mistakes and keep from making those same mistakes ourselves? Or are we just going to walk right in the same pathway that they have walked, make the same mistakes that they have made, and experience the same pain that they have experienced? What are we going to do? Let me give to you some points to consider as we think about this battle that is taking place between the God of heaven and the gods of pleasure. First of all, I want you to understand this. God wants us to enjoy life here on the earth. He's not a cosmic killjoy up there in heaven that wants to take away our fun down here on the earth. Now, there are some people who think that of God. That he wants to have his thumb on us and just keep us from having any kind of fun. Just don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. Don't have any kind of fun whatsoever. They think that that is God and how he feels towards mankind. That is simply not true. And the scripture bears that out. I want to read to you several passages of scripture which bear for us the heart of God and what he wants for his children here on the earth. Let me read to you 2 Peter 1.3. It says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Now, that doesn't sound to me like God has his thumb on us not wanting us to have fun. It doesn't sound to me like that's a, that's a life that God desires for us, one that is smothered in drudgery. No, rather it says that he has given to us everything we need to live life to the full. How about this verse, 1 Peter 1.8. It says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. Again, to me, that doesn't sound like God is up there in heaven wanting to suppress us, to, to drive us into the ground, to have us live a depressed life. That's not what God wants for us. To me, that says he wants us to have a life filled with inexpressible joy. A life that, that has joy that is beyond words. A glorious joy. That's his will for us. The question is, will we live the kind of life that allows us that kind of joy? You see, that's, that's the question. This is what God wants for us. A life of inexpressible joy 
Will we live the kind of life that allows us to experience that inexpressible joy? Jesus, as he was here on the earth, preached a sermon. You you know it as the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember how that sermon started? We call them the Beatitudes. There's about eight Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Eight of those. It's a recipe on how to be happy. That's what God wants for his followers. He wants us to live a life that is is lived in such a way that we can experience his blessing, his happiness. 1 John 1, 4 says, And these things we write so that our joy may be complete. You can have a complete Joy, that sounds inviting to me. Not partial joy or almost filled joy. Rather, he says, we can have complete joy. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. I don't think he would have wrote that if, if it hadn't have been possible for us. The Lord wants us to enjoy life here on this earth. That's why he has given to us so many good gifts. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift that we have. For instance, food. How many of you like to eat? Sure we do. I think probably all of us like to eat. God is the giver of that gift. How about this gift? The gift of sex. It's a wonderful gift that God has given to us. And we can enjoy that gift within the boundaries of marriage. You see, he knows that if we get outside of those boundaries or outside of those parameters that he has for these gifts, then they cease to bring joy to us. Rather, they bring destruction to us. For instance, food. We, we like to eat. We love to eat. And food is ours to enjoy. But if we get outside of those parameters that he has for us concerning food, that's when destruction comes, when we overeat, when we spend too much time eating the wrong kinds of food. Then the blessing becomes a curse. The joy becomes sorrow. And the same is true with sex. Sex is a God-given gift for the husband and the wife to enjoy together, to come together and experience great joy and intimacy between the two of them. But outside of those parameters, destruction comes. Now, Hollywood wouldn't want us to know that. Hollywood would just go crazy with that kind of a message. They're they're saying, you've got to be kidding. That's outrageous to even say that. But sin catches up with us over a period of time. It's not like it does catch up with us overnight. But over a period of time, it catches up with us and it wears us down. It overloads us with such an emptiness and loneliness. And we feel used and abused. And we feel about as worthless as a piece of paper that one would wad up and just toss to the curb. When we get outside of those parameters concerning sex. 
and the and the and the joy becomes sorrow and the and the blessing becomes a curse when we don't listen to God. Let me get to you a second point. He never intended for his gifts to become gods to us. And that's what has happened for so many people. Instead of enjoying the gifts and worshiping the Creator, what we have done oftentimes is we lay the Creator aside, we ignore the Creator, and we begin to worship the gifts. Food, instead of enjoying it as a blessing and staying within His parameters, we get outside of His parameters and we become obsessed with food and it becomes a God to us. And the same thing can be said about sex. It becomes a God to us when we become obsessed with it. And then we are led down that road of adultery and pornography and perversion. And I thought Kyle Eidemann did such a good job in his presentation here as he's saying that oftentimes we seek comfort from the gift rather than from the giver of the gift. You have a bad day, you come home, what do you do? And sometimes instead of going to the Creator for comfort and, and consolation, we go to the refrigerator and we open the door. And we try to get comfort from the food that we eat. Same thing happens with sex. We seek joy and peace from the gift rather than from the gift giver. You know what the end result is? It's pain when we lay God aside and we begin to worship in the, in the temple of pleasure and we end up with disappointment and frustration and emptiness. If you're in a small group, you probably saw this video clip last week. Let's look at it. Paul Jones. I guess what I've finally learned is that God is not ultimately interested in my comfort. He's interested in my healing. And those things that I was doing, turning to food to feel better in the moment, rather than turning to Him for the ultimate healing of my heart, which is what I needed, it kept me from becoming who it was that God always intended me to be. He never intended for the gift that He's given to us to become a God to us. And again, as I was reading this last week in these chapters that was assigned to us, one of those chapters, this temple of pleasure that we're talking about today, one of the chapters was the subject of sports and how in America, sports has become a god to so many people. And all you have to do is just turn the TV on this afternoon and you see that, that, that for many people, I'm not saying for every person who's in these filling these stadiums, but for many people, sport has become a god. 
We live from weekend to weekend to take in all of the sports stuff to such a point that that we begin to to have this as an idol in front of us. We wear the garb, we we read up on our favorite sports team, we know all the players and their statistics, we play the fantasy game and we stay up on who's hot and who's not and and we work our schedule around uh, the games and we go berserk when when the team plays well and wins and we get depressed when they play bad and lose and we spend countless dollars compare that with Jesus and our our faith and our coming to church and our worshiping with the body of believers how's one look versus the other Where's, where's our enthusiasm at? Where's our commitment at? Where's our investment in? Of not only money, but of time. We have all kinds of time to, to invest and follow our favorite team. You want me to have time to invest in a ministry here at the church? Well, you know, my time's all filled up. I, I don't have time for that. I'm sorry. We, we, we have an investment in dollars over here. You want me to give sacrificially to the kingdom of God? I can't do that. My finances are tight and, and the economy's hard. We know our favorite players and, and statistics about those players. And we can give you all kinds of, of statistics about our team. You want me to memorize Scripture? You want me to have time for Bible reading every day? I don't have that kind of time. We get all kinds of excitement and of when our team wins and how they're doing. And, and we aren't afraid to, to say that we are a fan of this team. You want me to witness about Jesus? And, and you want me to get excited in the worship service? He never intended for his gifts to become gods to us. Let that sink in. Let me give to you a third point. In him is true life. Let me read to you another portion from this book. Page 123. He says, ultimately, the gods of pleasure can't satisfy our desires. We come to final realization that what we need cannot be found through the stomach, through sexuality, or through amusement. We want pure, unadulterated joy, and the trail finally leads to God himself. At the end of Solomon's diary, he reaches this conclusion. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. He says, we were made for God. And until he is our greatest pleasure, all the other pleasures of this life will lead to emptiness. Augustine expressed this in his prayer nearly 15 centuries ago. He said this, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Do you hear that? Our hearts are restless 
until they find rest in thee. Jesus said it this way. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. His true life is, is found not in the gods of this world, but true life is found in Jesus. I came that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. The New International Version says it this way. I came that you may have life to the full. Psalm 1611 says, In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. You looking for complete joy? You looking for fullness of life and pleasures forever? Then turn to the God of heaven. Turn to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Turn to the God who was and is and is to come. He is the one who can give to us inexpressible joy. Now, earlier in the sermon, I had on the screen for you 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and we read there that, that He has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. I didn't read to you the rest of that passage of Scripture. I want to read that, the conclusion of that verse to you. He sa- it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness Through our knowledge of Him. Through our knowledge of Him. You see, all this life that He has given to us, it's made available through our knowledge of Jesus, who has called us by His own glory and goodness. Now, I will tell you that God's definition of joy is different than the world's definition of joy. We need to understand that. The world's definition of joy, it's, it's happiness. It's, a, it's a, a, a lift emotionally. It's a, it's a high. But you understand that kind of emotional high needs to happen again and again and again. Because once we win the big game, once we achieve the goal, once we receive the reward on this earth, then we're looking for the next win. We're looking for the next achievement to to bring happiness to us. With God, it's different. God's joy can be everlasting. God's joy is there even amidst difficult circumstances His joy brings strength to us to get through the trials of life. So which God or gods are you worshiping? The God of heaven or the gods of this earth who really have nothing to offer to you? I love the little story that Kyle Eidelman told in his book, and he also shared it on the video clip that we saw last week in our small group. You you remember the little girl? She saw that 
pearl necklace, that imitation pearl necklace in the department store. She just fell in love with it. She saw the price. She began to save her money. And when the day came that she had enough money in her savings, she took that and she went to the department store and she bought that necklace. And once it was hers, she put it around her neck and there was no one or nothing that would get that necklace off of her. She loved that necklace. And she wore it day and night. Well, the evening came that her dad came into her room and said, Jenny, do you love me? Well, you know that I love you, Daddy, she said. If you love me, give me your necklace, he said. I can't give you my necklace. I love my necklace, she said. I'll give you my favorite toy, but not my necklace. Dad turned around and walked out. Next night, he came into the room again. Jenny, do you love me? You know that I love you, Daddy. Then give me your pearl necklace. I can't give you my pearl necklace, Daddy. I love my pearl necklace. I'll give to you, I'll give to you my, my favorite doll. But not my necklace. Dad turned around and walked out. The next day, Jenny found her dad. And she came to him with tears running down her face. And she said, here, Daddy. I want to give you my necklace to show you how much I love you. And when he took that imitation pearl necklace from his daughter, Jenny, he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a velvet case And he opened it, and inside was a genuine pearl necklace that he gave to her. He was waiting for her to give up the imitation so that he could give her the real thing. And that's the difference between the God of heaven and the gods of pleasure. One is the real thing, and the others are just an imitation that cannot satisfy. Let's pray together. We believe, Heavenly Father, that you are for real. You are the true God, the Creator God. The God who gives life. The God who gives inexpressible joy. The God who gives so many good gifts to us. May we have you in the rightful place of our heart. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.